Hello and welcome to episode 69 of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Today is a mostly normal comic book podcast day uh, with the news with comic book pick lists, which I'm still behind on Saga and Monstrous and a couple of other things. So please have mercy. I will catch up hopefully by the next podcast. But we also have comic book polls that are coming out this week, today the 28th for DC Comics, and tomorrow the 29th for everything else. Then we're going to talk the Obi-Wan Kenobi finale, which happened on Disney Plus this past Wednesday. Also Ms. Marvel Episode 3, same thing, Disney Plus this past Wednesday. And then we're going to do a quick Star Trek Strange New Worlds catch-up, covering briefly, somewhat briefly, episodes 6, 7, and 8 of this first season, which I am still really getting a kick out of, and I hope that you are too, or at least I can convince you to watch it and enjoy it as well. As for the news, we will of course be covering the Tim Sale tribute, a legendary comics writer and artist creator in general. Tim Sale um, passed away this past week, and we are going to be talking about him because he was a true, true legendary comic creator that um, it's very sad to have left us now. So we will be going over a tribute to Tim Sale. Um, but then other new stuff, we only have a couple of points being, the first being uh, Netflix Spy Kids, the second being a brief note on Comic-Con San Diego this year, and finally some new casting information for the Sony Madam Web movie. However, before we get started, as usual, we'll go over the social media info. If you would like to be connected, we have a Yancey Street Discord. Uh, fresh invite link is at the bottom of each episode. It's just a place for like-minded folks. You don't have to just constantly talk about nerd stuff. You can talk about whatever you want. It's just a community forum. Uh, you can find me most easily uh, via social media on Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics. Uh, for podcast updates, I usually post those on Twitter, which you can find me at Savage SheGeek because Sensational is too many letters. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. I've been working a lot on fixing up the site so that it is still relevant to be looked at in addition to the podcast, um, which does include a beginner's guide to both manga and comics, uh, which I hope covers any information that you might need to take your first steps into those worlds, and that includes recommendations on graphic novels, um, manga, comics, indies, all that kind of stuff. I hope you have something there that strikes your interest. I also have reading orders of various leading ladies with Clea, Madeline Pryor, and Magic being three really relevant characters in the comics, especially at the moment. If you'd like to know more about them, I have the entire read histories of those first two and the majority of the important stuff from Magic down as well. Not to mention the podcast episodes that I have about Clea, Madeline Pryor, and Magic. Magic, three different specials for those women if you would like to find those and just listen to it all I can literally talk your ear about off about them <laughs> but um, but anything that you want to see on the blog or related to the podcast that is post or pre-February 2021 you will find that on the blog in the archive um, I do post the podcast pod notes which is just the notes I take through the week to create the podcast episode I post those on the blog as well for anybody who is interested in reading instead of listening or for those who are hearing impaired 
Um, and you can find links to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most, if not all, podcast hosting apps. That also includes YouTube, where I post the podcast episodes in a single playlist form, if that is an easier format for you to listen for to listen from. I also post action figure review videos. Um, it's been a lot of imports lately, as I've pretty much given up on the Hasbro Marvel Legends line, but I do have a very large backlog of those Legends um, review videos, so if you are interested in those, they are there, and that does include the HasLab Sentinel, and we should be getting Galactus from them pretty soon, too, so that will go up as soon as we get him. I do have a podcast Patreon, if you're interested in that, it is under Sensational She Geek, and there is also the Ko-fi, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, etc., all linked on the link tree with some other fun stuff that you can check out at the bottom of the description for each episode. In the news, we are starting off with that promised Tim Sale tribute. Tim Sale is a fantastic, he was a fantastic artist, um, and as I mentioned, true legend in the comic industry for the past several decades. He's really, he really made his mark, made a name for himself and the stories and the art style that he tells, um, and people really, really enjoy it. And so it is very sad um, that he is now gone, but I have a little bit, um, of a tribute here, you know, it's kind of hard as a fan um, to really say factual things about the character of a person if you've never met them. Um, so what I've done here is I've gone through and picked out some tributes that other creators and publishers have uh, written on various social media, um, and hopefully you can get a good idea of who he was and why he was so important um, from what they have to say. Uh, but if you are not familiar with Tim Sale, some of the projects that he worked with at DC Comics included The Long Halloween, Superman for All Seasons, and Batman Dark Victory, among many more. Uh, at Marvel, he is famous for Daredevil Yellow, Spider-Man Blue, and Hulk Gray, and Captain America White. Yes, they all have a similar theme in the name. Um, sales art style, if I was to try and put words to it, um, I, I want to say is minimalistic, but that really doesn't capture what it is that he actually does. Um, I definitely recommend looking up his work. Um, there is a large variety in it. Just for example, if you were to compare uh, Superman for all seasons to some of his more indie projects where he was a little bit more creatively challenged um, as far as what the direction of this art style inside the comic goes, um, huge, huge differences um, where you can almost not even tell that it was the same artist. So Sale was extremely um, fluid in the style, but still always kind of had a recognizable touch to it that made it truly Tim Sale art. Of course, as far as those indie projects go, Sale is most known for Grendel, which is a project at Dark Horse, and we do have a, a bit of a note from Dark Horse as well as other publishers. Uh, from DC Comics, uh, their statement is, Tim Sale was an incredible artist whose take on iconic characters had real human depth and his groundbreaking page designs changed the way an entire generation thinks about comic book storytelling. Our condolences go to Tim's family and friends. He will be deeply missed. I just wanted to add, um, yes, the groundbreaking page design changed the way an entire generation thinks about comic book storytelling. Yes, um, that's something that's actually very interesting about the comic book industry is every so often you'll have... 
um, a creator or a team of creators who comes through and who does something different. Um, and that will set a new precedent for what is possible in the world of comic book storytelling, because this medium is, um, as Sale himself, wildly fluid. You can do so much with it. You can write entire comic book issues without a single word on the page and still tell a deep, meaningful story. You can put extremely minimal art on the page and a walls of text and still tell an incredibly artistically understood story. And that is something that Sale really, really excelled at. Those kinds of pushing the boundaries. From Marvel Comics, they say Tim Sale was a legendary artist who created comic book masterpieces across and beyond the industry. At Marvel, his color series became stunning classics and remained just a glimpse at his acclaimed legacy. We mourn his loss today, and our thoughts are with his family and loved ones. Richard Starkings, who was a editor um, and close friend, and I believe he was even an inker for Tim Sale for a short for an amount of time, if not colorist. Um, he was the one who announced the passing of Sale on social media, and what he said was, "It was with a heavy." It was with a heavy heart that I have to announce that my closest friend and comrade in comics, Tim Sale, has passed away peacefully today, June 16th. Susan Bailey, thank you for being the love of his life. He adored you. That, of course, is his wife. Um, and then we have uh, from Dark Horse on, well, not necessarily on Grendel, but on Sale. We are very saddened to learn of Tim Sale's passing. An incredible talent, we are honored to have worked with him over the years on Grendel and more. Our thoughts and condolences go out to his friends and loved ones. He will be missed. We have a couple of artists and writers who uh, piped in as well from Adam Hughes, who is himself kind of a similar, hmm, I want to say similar era artist, but I don't actually know how accurate that is. They were both active in the 90s. That's probably as accurate as that'll go. Um, he, what he says about Tim Sale. Many people, many today speak of the great, of the late great Tim Sale. Some mention what a great guy he was. He was. Others mention what a great comic artist he was and will always be. Let me add, Tim Sale was cool. How cool? Once over dinner, he dropped that he'd seen the Beatles in concert. That not only ages, uh, that's the end of the quote, but that not only gives you an accurate age of both Adam Hughes and Tim Sale, but of the uh, kind of the era that they come from and the interests that they share and what they may have bonded over as creators. And that's something that is not to be taken um, lightly. I think that that's, that's, that says a lot about character. Uh, from Tom King, he says, God damn it, Tim Sale was one of the greatest storytellers in the history of comics, an era-defining Batman artist and a humble, kind, cool man. My favorite, his stunning work on Challengers, showed me what a superhero story could be. We're all still living on borrowed time. Rest in peace. Uh, one thing uh, Tom King also noted elsewhere on social media, and I will note it here as well as I'm thinking about it, Tim Sale did... Um, a huge chunk of Tom King's Batman covers. When Tom King was on the 2016 Rebirth Batman, um, Tim Sale did a number of the variant covers, and uh, we do have a number of them. And I, again, I recommend you checking those out because they are um, exactly what I was saying before about pushing the boundaries of 
uh, art styles. Um, he really had some fun with a lot of those covers. One in particular, I don't know the issue number off the top of my head, um, but it is a Batman and Catwoman pressed up against an alley wall, basically. Um, and apparently, the story goes, Tim Sale passed the art onto Tom King to make sure it's the cover that, you know, I guess would be good. And Tom King looked at it for a second and asked him, how many hands does Batman have? Because if you look at the art, I believe there are three hands wrapped around Catwoman. <laughs> Um, and they kept it that way. And so it's just a funny little bit of history out there. Uh, Tim Sale got a little bit into the passion of the piece <laughs> and gave Batman some extra hands. Not on purpose, but um, I just find that story to be really cute. Um, and it, and also, you know, I'm a big fan of the Bat-Cat relationship, obviously. So I, I love to see other creators love that as well. From Gail Simone, she says, We lost one of the greats. Tim Sale was one of my favorite artists. I adored him as a person. I'm not ready to say goodbye yet. Thank you to the people who were able to voice what kind of man and artist he was far better. This hurts. My love to his family, friends, and fans. And the last quote that I have here uh, is from Jim Lee, which... Um, many articles have noted he is currently the DC chief creative officer um, for DC Comics. Uh, many articles have noted that he has very sadly become extremely well-versed in writing eloquent commentary about his iconic artists that we have lost too soon, which is something that is kept up with this tribute to Sale from him. He says, Tim Sale was an amazing artist, draftsman, and storyteller. He had that special kind of talent you encounter once in a generation. I'm convinced his work stood out because he was simply fearless. He didn't care that his work looked different from the mainstream house styles. Because the taunt chiaroscuro, I'm so sorry, style, which became his trademark, Tim clearly put up a premium on storytelling, clarity, and pacing, cherishing emotion above all. His stories were beautifully visceral, nuanced, and, and evinced, is evinced a word? Deep humanity. Tim simply had no use for surface banality. I think he'd freely admit his style was neither slick or hyper detailed or particularly precious but he quickly became both an artist and also a fan favorite which is not a common combination artist artist and fan favorite truthfully he had that kind of talent usually associated with the most arrogant or self-absorbed among us but not tim he was such a sweet kind and good-natured soul i feel fortunate to have called him a friend and will miss him beyond words that was, again, a statement from Jim Lee. And I think we've pretty much covered... I have to look... Chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro. That is a word I should know, isn't it? It's an art style. Um, but he does... That's. I'm sure you can look that word up. Chiaroscuro. Um, and get some better examples of the style. Um, but yeah, I hope that covers the emotion and the uh, the effect that Sale had on the entire comics community over the course of many decades, um, because it really is there and it does deserve to be mentioned. Moving on now into other news. Take a deep breath, shake off the sadness. <clears throat> now this is a total 180. Uh, on Netflix, we are going to be getting a new Spy Kids movie coming from none other than Robbie Rodriguez. Um, which is super notable for me for a number of reasons. Robbie Rodriguez, when I think of Robbie Rodriguez, I think of the hatchet, the, the machete movies. Um, 
And I think of, uh, what is it? There was the episode of Mandalorian where we get the Boba Fett reveal, I believe. And he does the, like, the knee gun and stuff. That was such a cool episode. That was Robbie Rodriguez. Stupendous. Um, also, the Netflix film We Can Be Heroes, which is actually itself extremely similar to Spy Kids, was also Robbie Rodriguez. So, go figure. Um, I'm not entirely sure who did the first Spy Kids. I don't, I don't think it matters. But this Spy Kids movie is going to star, obviously, a new family. Um, and that family is going to be parented by Zachary Levi and Gina Rodriguez. Zachary Levi, you may know from Chuck. And Gina Rodriguez, you may know from Jane the Virgin. Um, as well as both of them extremely... I'm sure much better things than those two examples that I just thought of, but um, they're both really great actors, and so I think that's good. Uh, the kids are going to be played by Everly Cargania and Connor Esterson. Not a clue who they are. I, again, don't think it matters. <laughs> I'm sure it matters to, like, relevant stuff, but in this case, it's not super important. Um, why are we talking about this, you may be wondering. Well, Spy Kids, the the original, I guess, came out when I was obviously young. Um, I don't know how old I was. I, don't, I didn't look up what year those were made in. But I loved that stupid crap. It was so dumb. It was so... Like, I remember rewatching them a couple of years ago, and oh my gosh, the CGI and all of, like, there was zero believability in, like, anything in these movies. But they were so fun. So fun. <laughs> um, so, obviously super excited for this um it's not gonna be a targeted for adults this is not for people like me this is for kids um so if i end up not liking it it doesn't mean that it didn't do its job it's just a kid movie and i'm not a kid anymore i'm just excited about the fact that they're making a new one of these i hope it's as good as i hope it's as good to children these days as i thought the spy kids was when i was a child you know um, all we know really about this is that Robbie Rodriguez is going to be writing, directing, and producing. It's going to be on Netflix. Oh yeah, it's going to be on Netflix and done by Skydance and Spyglass as well. And this last little bit, um, just the brief rundown, is just going to be the latest Spy Kids chapter is set after the children of the world's greatest secret gene secret agents unwittingly help a powerful game developer unleash a computer virus that gives them control of all technology, leading to them becoming spies themselves to save their parents and the world. Literally just like all the other movies, it's actually very close to the original Spy Kids, which I believe had to do with video games itself. But it wasn't a virus, it was just a game, I think, that was making you die. I don't remember, but it was fun. Um, and I'm sure this will be just as fun Oh god, I hope so. As well for the children these days. The children. The kids. Um, Comic-Con is coming up in less than a month. We have uh, the dates for the event are Wednesday, July 20th, where they have a preview night through Sunday, July 24th. Um, the the two big two, you know, Marvel and DC, will both technically be there. <laughs> um, Marvel is going to be there in Hall H for the first time since 2019. You know, for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, and then DC slash Warner slash Discovery, because they're all kind of the same thing now. They are not going to have a hall uh, exhibit or a booth on the floor or anything like that. Uh, but they are apparently going to have a presence, whatever that might mean. Um, so going back to Marvel, the Kevin Feige had said that thing about, oh, it's going to become very apparent in the next blah, 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 blah. 
Um, and we were also thinking, oh, Disney, Disney Plus Day, that's not a thing, is it? Um, uh, gosh, what do they call it? D23, that's the one. Uh, D23, I think Disney Plus Day actually is a thing, my bad. But D23 is in September, um, but Comic-Con is in July, and they are going to be there at Hall, I don't know if it's Hall H, but they're going to be having a, um, you know, uh, uh, what do they call that? A sit-down thing. Discussion, whatever. Um, so th with that in mind, these things that Kevin Feige said, oh, in the coming months, it's going to be very apparent. If I was to guess, I think that they're going to save the majority of the load of stuff that they have for us for D23. Um, we'll probably get at Comic-Con is going to be like some teases. We may get titles, we may get actors, um, but we're not going to get like details until D23. Um possibly footage d23 who knows honestly um if there's gonna be any big footage i feel like they're gonna like of the the coming ant-man movie or whatever else might be happening next year that's probably going to be safe for d23 and hall h is probably just going to be a big celebration of look how much fun we're having it's going to be more fun in the future our last little bit of news here as i said does revolve around the sony madame web movie update today being Ebba Roberts was cast in the film as well. She joins Dakota Johnson as the title hero, Sydney Sweeney in an undisclosed role, as well as Celeste O'Connor, Isabel Merced, oh sorry, Isabella Merced, and Tahar Rahim, um, whoever all of those people are. Uh, we have S.J. Clarkson, who worked on Jessica Jones and the Defenders. They are directing Madame Webb. Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless, uh, who collaborated on Morbius, are going to be writing the screenplay. And the movie itself is scheduled to come out July 7th, 2023. That's in about a year. I think it's going to be absolute trash. Um, I know we were all really excited at first because, oh, they're doing a Madam Web movie. And just the more, the further down the line we go, the more I'm <laughs> seeing that this is just going to be a bad movie. Not just because... Sony's in charge of it and because of the Morbius writers being on the screenplay. <laughs> Although those are the two big points. They're big points. Um, they seem to be casting only known actors and actresses um, for the most part, for the main characters. Um, and I am a little bit confused as to that. Obviously it's kind of a thing the whole MCU is getting into a little bit. But but this is like every every character is a known name, um, and I just am seeing all these egos coming into play, and Sony with their extremely shaky ways of doing things as it is is just like I, I I don't I don't see this being too good. But if you are interested, Emma Roberts as will be in Madame Web as somebody as well as Sydney Sweeney, and Dakota Johnson as Madame Web herself. For comic book picks this week, I'm going to be talking New Mutants number 26, Samurai Sonia number 1, Immortal X-Men number 3, Marvel's Voices Pride 2022, and Catwoman 44, very briefly, because I didn't like it. So starting off with New Mutants number 26, we are still doing the arc with magic um, and her buddies and Madeline Pryor all stuck in limbo. So what happened at the end of the last issue was her soul sword was destroyed and she ended up, um, they ended up all kind of being transported to a weird wasteland part of limbo in the snow. So in this issue, they all kind of, they, uh, they go through the snow looking for anything 
And after a while, they eventually find a, uh, like a base or castle or something that's being overwhelmed by demons who all have the techno-organic virus, which is, um, you know, lethal. So they, they go up and they're watching the battle and then a figure appears inside the castle and just comes out and wipes out all the demons with one swoop of magic. Um, play on words because it turns out it is magic. <laughs> it's Ileana Rasputin from the future. Um, would she have been stuck here basically? So um, the old Ileana explains her story that um, Wolf Spain and um, oh gosh, a, a Danny Moonstar. <laughs> um, they died in battle on one of the first days that they were stuck there uh, going against the techno-organic virus demons and uh, Madeline Pryor ends up sacrificing herself a little while later and that's how old magic ended up there um, standing off pretty much for all eternity to these techno-organic virus demons. She uh, tells them that Krakoa had fallen and therefore Warlock um, had ended up there in limbo with her. It told her Krakoa had fallen um, and so she uses him as a sword basically to uh, channel magic through him to defeat waves of these techno-organic virus demons. So then remember um, in the last issue Sim was taken advantage by question mark. We're not sure who that is yet, um, but somebody put him under some kind of spell that made him um, and all of these other demons go crazy um, and go against their master who was Ileana technically. Um, so Sim then comes charging through and she beats him. She gets her soul sword, but only temporarily. It eventually does fail back, uh, go back to failing. Um, and so hopefully in the next couple of issues or in the, I guess in the next issue, we're going to see her come to some conclusion and be able to pull her soul sword out and do stepping discs once again. Samurai Sonia was pretty fun, if a bit of a very slow start. Uh, she is the only daughter of a shogun warlord. Their ship goes down and as she drowns, she pleads to the goddess Amaterasu to save her. Uh, she does, and in exchange, Sonia becomes her champion. Her first fight is against a massive, massive skeleton boy, um, and she beats him with her new magical flaming sword. I don't think this one's going to be too deep, but it will be fun. Immortal X-Men number three is easily my pick of the week. This issue folks focuses on Irene, aka Destiny. When she was 13, her abilities manifested and she wrote 13 books of prophecies. Now she is back in the thick of it with her new body being completely mangled by visions coming from every which way. I should say mind, not body. It's not physical, it's mental. Um, finally, she starts to see the visions dart further into the future. What she sees is Avengers versus X-Men versus, or I guess it's Avengers, X-Men, Eternals. I'm not really sure if they're versus, but it's Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, which is the event that's coming up right around the corner. She sees Sinister with Emma and Jean at his side. She sees Magic as Dark Child standing over the bodies of dead X-Men. She sees Exodus being worshipped um, or praised or something. And somebody who is the Dark Phoenix, it's either Hope or Rachel is my guess. Um, I would say probably it's going to be Hope. All of these timelines, though, they all end the same way in horror and destruction. So 
She focuses, she sees the furthest future where Exodus seems to have become the Phoenix and he is going against Mr. Sinister and it's all weird and warped. Um, so she watches the scene play out and discovers the truth here. What we already know, Essex has cloned Moira, which means that he can basically restart the universe whenever he wants because that was Moira's mutant power. She decides, Destiny decides to keep this to herself as he can literally just go and kill one of his Moiras and restart this whole thing at whatever point he wants. So she keeps that to herself, got to play that close to the chest and figure out how to take down Essex without him really jump-starting jump the universe from point A again. Um, and then, then at the end of the issue, she sees there is one pattern um, in Irene's visions that she just had that of all the possible futures that have the same thing, there is no raven in any of them. There is no her wife. Marvel's Voices Pride 2022. Uh, we have a number of stories here. They were fine. I honestly think the DC issue did a little bit better. Um, the first story was Loki and the Young Avengers. It was fine. Uh, then you had Hercules and Marvel Boy. Didn't care for that one. D-Man leads a group uh, group session of trans superheroes at the LGBTQIA plus youth center in Queens. That one was pretty fun. Um, and then you have Horatio Walters, who is a mutant from Wakanda, and his husband, Taku. Actually, I don't think he's a... Was he a mutant? I, I did not care for that story too much. Uh, Moondragon and Philavel, that one was pretty cute. Runa and Runa the Valkyrie going through various pride fests. That one was pretty cute. And then the last one was Sheila Sexton and Morgan Red, who were trans mutant heroes as a team. And then in the back, you have several pages of history and information on some of the um, vaguely mentioned, less known or newer characters who are queer at Marvel. And then the last one we're talking about here is Catwoman 44 super met issue um wasn't wasn't into it at all um i'm probably not gonna read beyond issue 45 because that is the last um jenny frizen variant cover for the series um, and that's why i've been keeping up with it because i really love those covers i collect them like an art collector would it's just yeah okay um so i'm, I'm probably gonna stop reading catwoman until she's back at a point where um, she's back with Batman, like openly together with him, because I just like that dynamic. I don't like this, like Selena pretending that she's single thing, because she's, I mean, she's not. <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> hopefully, um, I don't know, maybe they'll give me a reason to stick with the Catwoman series beyond Jenny Frizen. Moving on to polls for this week. These are things that are coming out for DC Comics today, Tuesday the 28th, and tomorrow, Wednesday the 29th. Um, starting off from Scout Comics, we have Agent of World, which is W-O-R-L-D-E. It's an acronym. And this is issue number one. What we say here is horny robots, super evolved orangutan bosses, joy riders from the 26th century. Nothing phases Philip Blank, top agent for the sci-fi spy organization known as World. But lately, Philip's been wondering if there isn't more to life than saving the world through creative violence. What is Philip hiding from World, and how far will he go to keep it hidden? The most beautifully bizarre book of the year is here. Iron Cat number one is obviously from Marvel by Jed McKay and Perry Perez. The Iron Cat armor made its first appearance in Black Cat number 11, but both Black Cat and Iron Man thought that 
that was the last they would see of it. But if Felicia is surprised to see the armor again, you can imagine how furious Tony is. There's someone new in the Iron Cat armor, and they have a plan that will put them in the crosshairs of all the heroes of the Marvel Universe. Both Iron Man and Black Cat's secrets and mistakes are going to come back to haunt them, and it's going to be rough. Don't miss this fantastic new miniseries. I believe it is five issues. Uh, and then on that same note, Iron Man Hellcat Annual Number 1. This one is definitely going to be my poll of the week. Uh, possibly. There's some other good stuff coming up. This is by Christopher Cantwell with art by Ruari, Ruari Coleman. It says, What fresh hell? Spinning out of the pages of Iron Man, Hellcat travels to San Francisco to get her house in order. Only this house is an aging Victorian manor left to her by her mother, Dorothy. The house and its secrets will reunite Patsy with old friends like Hetty Wolf, as well as others she'd hoped to leave dead and buried. When a supernatural crisis arises, will Hellcat and Iron Man combined be enough to beat back the flames of hell itself? And this does take place after Tony's marked down or shot down proposal in issue 20. No, I don't think it's going to change anything. They're not getting married. <laughs> Mindset number one comes from Vault Comics by Zach Kaplan and John Pearson. When an introverted tech geek from Stanford with dreams of changing the world accidentally discovers a form of mind control, he and his friends do something unexpected. They put the science into a meditation app to help users break their addiction to, uh, to other manipulative technologies and platforms. But after their rags to riches rise, a wake of murders, and a series of mind games, their mindset app reveal replaces all rival social media and achieves a cult following of a billion users. Public Domain number one is another one I am very excited for. This was actually first published on Substack, so we're finally starting to see the effect of Substack here in that um, we'll see how well this does because obviously it's been available to read on Substack through Chip Sartsky's uh, program there, um, and now it is being published through Image Comics on print. So there was some concern when Substack first began poaching comic writers and artists that uh, it would cause difficulty especially for indie publishers to um, keep up with being able to put things out at the same time um, and fans would have to choose one or the other however um, I have not seen too much of that effect um, and this I believe is the first Substack published comic that is going to be put out on hard copy this is entirely by Chip Zartsky who is um, uh, I was gonna. I always want to say he's a hilarious writer. That's not quite it. Um, you know how they always say that like comedians are like the realest people and they can like hit you the hardest like emotionally, because like funny people are really the saddest. Chips Arcee's kind of in that wheelhouse. Um, he, you you want to describe him as funny, but then you stop and you think about it, and all of the like huge emotional heartfelt moments and like um epiphanies almost that he puts in his in his work like emotional epiphanies um and just very very mature thoughtful relatable at times content he's just an extremely good writer <laughs> um so he wrote apparently his own solicit here so it says sid dallas is responsible for pop culture's greatest hero the domain but his sons miles and david have a complicated relationship with both the creation and their creator can they convince their dad to fight for their family's legacy this fun and heartfelt series 
written and illustrated by Eisner winner Chip Sartsky, explores a wild alternate re alternate world where comic book creators aren't properly acknowledged or compensated for their creations. Crazy, I know. Hi, it's me, Chip. I'm writing the solicitation. That's what I mean by, like, he's funny, but then the sarcasm of our comic book creators aren't properly acknowledged or compensated for their creations. Crazy, I know. It's real as hell. <laughs> but it's funny at the same time. So you see what I'm going here? Okay. Another one that's I'm really excited for, I believe this is from Image, Sins of the Black Flamingo, number one, by Andrew Wheeler, with art by Travis Moore, who is fantastic, actually. Occult, I don't know why I said that, like, actually. Occult noir, Miami sleaze, Sebastian Harlow is the Black Flamingo, a flamboyant and narcissistic thief who gets his kick stealing mystic artifacts from the wealthy and corrupt of Miami's occult underground. When his latest job leads him to the, his biggest score so far, the hedonistic outlaw discovers something he wasn't looking for, something to believe in. It is apparently a very queer comic, and I am just super into that, so this is probably going to be one that I love as well. Uh, this one, I'm a little bit, this is more just like a fun thing that I want to talk about, and that is Tales of the Coffinverse. It's coming from Coffin Comics. Um, it's basically going to be <laughs> um, a bunch of their characters, such as Lady Death, who are going to be um, brought out into like alternate reality stuff, such as Captain Death. Uh, who is like their version of Captain America. It says, Captain Death, who opposes the monsters during 1945's World War Hell as a Satanist invades Europe. He's a demon guy. Like, it's it's a very... It's, and this is, it says, told in a 1960s Marvel style. Like, it's is going to be fun, but the thing about this is that it's Coffin Comics, and Brian Polito, I believe, is writing it, and he just is not the greatest writer. <laughs> you have to really love the... The concept of the characters at Coffin Comics to at all appreciate them. The writing is not where you get it, it's the concepts. The concepts are fantastic. The writing is usually not that great, but the concepts are super fun. <laughs> Moving on, uh, the variants number one of, I believe, five is going to be by Gail Simone and Phil Noto, which is all you got to say to get me on board. Phil Noto is fantastic. Uh, what would it really be like to meet an alternate version of yourself, another you who had made different choices and lived a completely different life as a result? That's the question facing Jessica Jones, as what seems like a routine investigation instead has her encountering other incarnations of herself from across the multiverse. Can Jessica get along with herself? Will she want to kill her other selves? And will seeing the lives she could have led drive her into a self-destructive spiral? This is what happens when you meet the variants. That concludes all of the one-shots and number ones coming from this week, so the rest we will skip the solicits. Um, first is Image Comics. We have 8 Billion Genies, number 2 of 8, by Charles Soule and Ryan Brown. Uh, Draculina, number 4, from Dynamite, by Christopher Priest, with Michael uh, Santamaria. She-Hulk, number 4, by Rainbow Roll and Luca Maresca, with Rico Renzi. Draculina, number four from Dynamite. I already said that one. Um, Batman Beyond the White Knight, number four of eight by Sean Gordon Murphy. Batcat, Batman Catwoman, number 12 of 12. The Wedding Issue by Tom King and Clay Mann. I'm excited for that one. Uh, Harley Quinn, number 16 by Stephanie Phillips and Riley Rossmo. And finally, Monstrous, number 41 
which I believe is not the last issue, but the series will be going on a break after this. I don't know, it could be the last issue. I don't think it is, though. Let's go ahead and start talking the Obi-Wan Kenobi finale, episode 6, which premiered last week on Disney+. Plus. Uh, this Overall, I believe this episode had its fair amount of ups and downs. However, it did have a fantastic ending. Um, I do have two articles linked below in the description that I found about this episode. One is a very in-depth article about Easter eggs, and the other is about connections and explanations for A New Hope. So how we're going to do this is we're going to cover um, Reva, the twins, uh, Vader versus Obi-Wan, the end, and then now what? So starting with Reva, what happens with her? She obviously ends up going after Luke and ends up not killing him. While she started off really great, Reva is, in my opinion, 100% the biggest stumble in this entire finale. Not because of anything that has to do with the actress or even the character, but because they just kind of move on from her. And that's it. Unless we're about to see more of her in Star Wars media, this felt like a super lame duck ending for her. Um, a bit more about her last scenes we'll talk about when we cover Luke, but it was really disappointing to see her just kind of written off. Again, that is unless we see her again somewhere in other Star Wars content, but that still won't make up for leaving it off with this feeling of just meh. Um, she does briefly chat with Kenobi after she doesn't kill Luke um, and his family, but again, it's not much of a conclusion for her. As for the twins, with Leia, uh, Obi has to leave her and with the other evacuees and refugees so that he can draw off Vader as they escape. Uh, we catch up with her then later on her home planet once again, Alderaan with the Organas. After her adventures with Obi and all that she's learned, Leia dresses herself that morning in a princess pants and tunic, complete with a blaster holster accessorized for a tunic belt. She decided she will be a different kind of leader, paving the way beautifully for the Leia we will meet nine years later. As for Luke, Reva goes after him, of course, and he shows he is not nearly as agile and battle-ready as his sister. He ends up falling and knocking himself out, and by the grace of Reva, somehow ends up not completely dead. Obi shows up as she brings his dumb, unconscious body back to the farm. Before Obi goes off on his own, he stops by the moisture farm once more to say goodbye to the Larses, and he finally gets to meet Luke in person. And it is no wonder that Luke remembers Ben so fondly. He comes up to the kid in full Jedi robes, with saber and all, giving his classic hello there. Of course Luke is going to be enamored with this person, <laughs> the idea of this person. Plus, he does get a chance to give Luke the toy plane finally as well. Now, Vader versus Obi. Uh, Hayden Christensen apparently rewatched that specific, you know which rebel scene, for the Obi-Wan Kenobi finale, which does make sense because the fight between those two does end up very similar to the fight between Vader and his former Padawan, Ahsoka Tano, which took place in Rebels. From the two of them, former allies trying to kill each other, to the reaction of seeing Anakin's burnt-up face under the broken helmet of Vader, it's a very emotional scene, and it's very similar to that scene in Rebels. It's it's really this scene, this one that we have between Obi and Vader. Um, it's really just an all-out brutal force and saber fight. They just kind of ignore their sabers after a while, honestly, and just use the force itself. Uh, they're literally throwing rocks at each other. Vader tries to crush Kenobi, but it 
doesn't work out, and ultimately, Obi-Wan is able to outlast his former apprentice due to probably only his physical strength and health being much stronger on its own. As soon as Vader's suit starts losing parts, his ability to fight back begins to fail, rage or not. So we end up with the classic crack in the helmet, stopping Kenobi in his tracks as he witnesses what's underneath for the first time. This whole time, he's been wrestling with what he feels is his failure to save Anakin, to keep him from falling dark. This is expressed enough to Vader that we get this fantastic sequence with Hayden Christensen's Vader speaking to Ewan's Kenobi. His voice is some combination of his own horse one and the deeper one projected from the helmet, and he does a marvelous job of mimicking the way Vader speaks in episode 6 just before his death when his helmet was malfunctioning again. But what he tells Obi in this moment really takes the cake. He says, I am not your failure, Obi-Wan. You didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did. It's an amazing line because of what he says, obviously, but the delivery adds so much. In mimicking the throaty, mangled, slow speech of Vader in episode 6, there is a notable pause between I am not your failure, Obi-Wan, and everything else, as well as between you didn't kill Anakin Skywalker and I did. And in those moments, there are hopes of flicker behind Kenobi's tired eyes, which makes it all the more brutal when Vader gets to the rest of his statement, solidifying who it is that we're talking to. This is Darth Vader, folks. This is no longer... Anakin Skywalker. Additionally, the cinematography of that sequence when Anakin is speaking, or rather I suppose when Vader is speaking, with the lights coming from their sabers, you see the blue light from Kenobi's saber, and then by the time that he gets to I did, you have the red light from his own saber reflecting off of his face in just the most horror movie way making Vader scary for kids again. 2022, I am here for it. Give me more. <sighs> Even then, um, after all of this, the main emotion that Kenobi feels through everything is just sadness. Sadness and pity, so he leaves the crippled Vader there, calling him Darth for the first time, as he does later in A New Hope, and all Vader can do is cry out after him in rage. We do check in with Vader on Mustafar later, where we see the good old Sheev Palpatine, aka Dark Sidious, questioning his loyalty, and Vader reaffirms it. Now, saving the best for the last, and also the last for the last, <laughs> the ending and a cameo. So after saying his goodbyes to um, the the everybody, you know, Luke and Leia and all that, uh, Kenobi goes off on Tatooine on his little space camel buddy, heading oddly enough towards the canyon, I think, that young Anakin Skywalker once raced his speeder through. He stops when he sees a glimmer, which grows into Qui-Gon Jinn. The much-debated-upon-Lee-and-Nissim cameo has come to pass as Kenobi gets, greets his late master for the first time in decades. He mentions wondering where Qui-Gon was all this time, and Qui-Gon says he was always there. Obi was just not yet ready to see. He has much to learn, he adds, and off he goes into the desert, and Kenobi follows. Yay! So now what? Now what? Now what? What now? Uh, Ewan McGregor told British GQ that he is interested in a second round, stating, I really hope we do another, and if I could do one of these every now and again, I'd just be happy about it. 
So that sounds promising, however, it's not his choice. Deborah Chow, the series' director, told RadioTimes.com that while the show was planned to be standalone, quote, I mean, there are, of course, more stories that you could tell. There's obviously another 10 years before we get to A New Hope, and with a character like Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think even just watching him ride across the sand sometimes is interesting. So who knows? It's hard to say right now because it was not the intention. Hayden Christensen himself is also eager to continue. He says, It was definitely conceived as a standalone story. I would love to continue with this character. You know, I think there's certainly more there to explore, and I would be so excited to get to do so. He also added that he, quote, would certainly be open to appearing in Kenobi if there is a season two. Now, Kathleen Kennedy is the one who was actually in charge of that decision. Um, she had originally said that it was meant to be one and done, but then the same sentence added, but I think that if there's huge engagement and people really want more Obi-Wan, we'll certainly give that consideration because the fans, they speak to us. And there is, of course, tons and tons of story that can be told in those next nine years. But the fact of the matter is, it isn't really necessary. And honestly, who knows how relevant it could be either. So what this comes down to, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens and enjoy and be grateful for what we've gotten um, so far. Going into Ms. Marvel Episode 3, this one also debuted on Wednesday, this past Wednesday on Disney+. Plus. Um, this episode title, the episode was titled Destined. So we pick up with a little bit of a flashback to 1942, where we have Najma, who is the woman we met at the end of the last episode, finding the bangle on the body of what is most definitely a dead Kree soldier, because she picks it off of, they're in this area with rubble, which by the way, um, there was a little bit of a Ten Rings uh, Easter egg there on the floor, if you didn't notice. So we have Najma, we have Aisha there with her, and they remove the bangle off the body of a buried Kree soldier. Now, <laughs> who knows if we're gonna find out who that Kree soldier was, <laughs> but, um, I think it would be really fun. And now I know in the Captain Marvel movie, they already said that uh, the woman, the woman pilot was Marvel, and that kind of made sense based on various things from the comics. <laughs> but how funny would it be if <laughs> the like, if they were to say like, oh yeah, the male Marvel or whatever, that that's his dead body crushed under the rocks, which I find funny because because basically what we've discovered in this episode. The bangles are the negabands that Marvel had in the comics. The negabands that would um, add, basically, add more power to what he already had and help control what he had. Um, <laughs> I just thought that was a funny concept. What if they like just sneakily reveal, oh yeah, the guy that you guys wanted to have Marvel from the comics? That that's his dead Kree body there, or Genusvel because he's more that skin tone, right? The blue, sparkly, whatever. He's he's cosmic, but. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so what we find out in the scene is that there is, in fact, a second bangle. And you need both bangles to return to where they came from, a different dimension. So um, what they basically decide is if there is any chance that the bangle can take us back home, we have to try. They try there in the flashback sequence. It's not enough. Um, or it seems to basically be not enough. So what we what we learn here is Aisha, and by context Najma and everybody they were there with, 
is from another dimension and so were all these other people. So they were exiled to Earth against their will and sensed, now in modern times, the presence of Nur, Nur meaning light, um, when Kamala puts on the bangle, discovering that Aisha had a progeny, which they previously did not know, apparently. Um, they cannot fully, they as in the people who actually were taken from the other dimension, they cannot actually access the band's power or their power or nor fully in this dimension because they are not from here. However, Kamala can because she is. The bangle is what helps unlock the Noor. Again, just like Marvel's Nega bands. Awesome stuff. I, I like how they're doing this so far. Um, so Kamala basically gets to the point. So you guys just want the bangle. Um, and they pause for a second. Najma pauses and then says that it was Aisha's wish, wish her great-grandmother's wish, for the bangle to bring them home and Kamala must finish what she started. So now they're basically saying, like, please help us. Um, in their home dimension, the newer dimension is what they call it, they are called clandestines, which are commonly known as jinn. Um, I did discuss the possibility of Kamala being part Jin back in another podcast episode several months ago, um, and she was afraid of Jin as a kid. She calls them the stuff of childhood nightmares. Now in the comics, um, again, already covered this back a few months ago in a, in a podcast episode, there is a historical long, long time ago, thousands of years ago, a female Jin named Elalith. Elalith? I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but she falls in love with a human man named Adam. You can kind of see where this is all kind of coming from. Um, and she ends up save, saving him and making him immortal. And then the two go on and they have children. Their children then have an incredibly long lifespan and they are what forms clandestine in the comics with Destin being Adam's surname, Adam Destin. So they are clandestine. Okay, you got it. It makes sense. We do not know yet if there is going to be anything like that historically explained for these clandestines. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the captions had it as one word, whereas clandestine could possibly be two words if they were doing it that way. Um, we'll just have to wait for this week's episode to see if they're going to give us any more background on the members uh, or the history, I guess, of Aisha and the other people from clandestine. I imagine that they must because it's kind of where we're at with like needing more information to move forward with the show. So I'm um, looking forward to that in any way that it comes in. Um, Bruno, because of course he gets involved, he thinks that he remembers Noor, hearing the term Noor from a Dr. Selvig paper, Eric Selvig being, we first met him in the Thor movie, the original Thor movie, um, and then, you know, in Avengers he was taken over by Loki and was made, it was the whole, Eric Selvig, you know, um, he's played by Skarsgård. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that kind of ties stuff into more main MCU land there. Meanwhile, the DODC, Department of Damage Control, are trying to search the mosque, which they are not legally allowed to do, and it's Nakia who steps in to list their rights and basically tell the uh, government people to get out unless you have a warrant, which they obviously don't. Nakia goes to Kamala then to Vent, who of course feels guilty because she is the costume hero that the DODC are looking for. She also mentions that she became a board member. Nakia won the board member position that she has been trying to get at the mosque, but Kamal was so wrapped up in her own thing that she doesn't hear. 
I thought that this might start be the start of a little bit of discord between the two of them, but Nakia seems to really understand Kabbalah is just this up in the clouds kind of person and sometimes you have to repeat yourself to get her to hear you. <laughs> so they do hug it out and everything seems to be okay. However, I can't help but feel, especially based on how the episode ended, that there is going to be a lot more discord between their friendship uh, in the immediate future. The next day, I think, at the wedding shower, which has another term, but basically it's a wedding shower, um, a friend of Muniba, who I remember is Kamala's mother, a friend of Muniba's mentions to her, to Kamala, how sorry, or excuse me, I'm mixing up my words. The friend of Muniba's tells her how sorry she is that Sana, her mother, couldn't make it. Okay, I got it out in the right order. Now we have this really cool scene right after that where Kamala goes outside and talks to their imam, who is their basically priest um, in layman's terms, about um, about this, the costumed hero and whether they are doing more harm than good. Um, and she asks how the hero should convince people that she's good and then we get this direct response from him which is from the comics and people were really excited about myself included where he responds that good is not a thing that you are it is a thing that you do and so that really starts kamala's journey into how she's going to properly be this hero Bruno then gifts her with a mask. I personally would very much like to know details on how he shaped it perfectly to her face and all of that, but I guess it's not super important. Um, Bruno is at work at the Circle K when Mr. Khan, Kamala's father, stops by, coming across Bruno's jinn research. He reads it aloud, speaking of a clan of jinn that were cast off and are now in search of the key to go home. He, of course, not knowing of the realness of the story, just kind of laughs it off. However, this is obviously Bruno getting more information to us, the audience, about this group of people. Later, Bruno and Kamala exchange their various news, his being that he's been accepted to Caltech in California, across the country, and he wants to go, but he has to make sure that everything's okay with her before she le before he leaves. There's also a line here that I think is setting up a little bit of discord that we're going to be definitely seeing in the Marvels movie come next summer. Carol Danvers would be reckless. Maybe it's a good thing you're not her. We can see that Kamala has this love for Carol, um, and much like, much like in the real world, I think um, there is. Um, a, a bit of like controversy over her because of her disappearance and nobody knows where she's been. She just kind of popped up one time and helped when we could really use the help a little bit more often. Um, and then the line about her being reckless, I imagine that has to do with the stuff from the battle of New York, uh, or not the battle of New York, but the battle with Thanos. Um, I, I definitely think that that's setting the seeds of discord for the movie. Later, Kamala talks to her mom briefly, who speaks on coming to America and feeling isolated while her husband worked and she didn't speak much English. So when she found the mosque, she made friends and they loved each other and she let them love her. For now, Kamala tells Kamran that she needs time to think and can't just jump into this whole Jin clandestine sending them home thing. He says he understands and that she should focus on the wedding. But his mom, Najma, speaks to him about it later, and she is clearly far more intense about the whole situation, and rather cavalier about the danger for Kamala. She says, at this point, they aren't asking anymore. They need her to send them home, whether they force her or not. 
Kamala's father speaks to Amir about life and choices. He says Amir is brave because he has chosen love and family over the other options. The wedding does go well. The parents of the newlywed surprise them with a choreo choreographed dance, including the little brother um, if, of um, of the wife in a uh, in the small Hulk outfit from uh, that was supposed to go to Avengers Con with Kamala from her dad. And then when uh, John Bon Jovi starts playing, Kamran shows up and he is uninvited. So he runs up to Kamala and very sketchily talks to her, making Bruno go into protector mode. Kamran has a chance to warn Kamala. And he does briefly uh, before the rest of the clandestines arrive and Kamala pulls the fire alarm to try and get everybody else to safety. As she tries to escape, uh, John Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer starts playing. It is a really cool sequence uh, with the uh, running through the, the the mosque and the various places, wherever, I don't know, a community center? Wherever it is that the wedding is taking place. Uh, she goes, one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode, she runs into the kitchen and tries to warn the kitchen staff and they're just like, yeah, we're just doing our job, girl. What the, what the hell are you talking about? And then one of the clandestine members comes in, walks past some dude just like whipping something up in a dish, throat punches him really hard and then it pans over to the other workers and one woman there goes mm -mm, absolutely not no -uh, and they all just skedaddle out of there <laughs> like this is just I, I i love the just like nope we're gone <laughs> like of course the little girl runs in and says there's somebody you guys gonna need to leave now and they're like i you're not my boss as soon as somebody gets throat punched nope we're out of here <laughs> not worth it I just, I thought that was, ooh, hitting my microphone. I thought that was the most accurate thing, this accurate feeling of the whole show. Uh, then we have, uh, we move on to outside the venue. Uh, several weddings were interrupted by the by the fire alarm at this venue, and we have a uh, Asian family, it looks like, and the two brides compliment each other. Oh, at least you look really pretty. Oh, you do too. Thank you. You know, it's really funny. Uh, Bruno doesn't know what to tell Kamala's parents, and Nakia ends up going off on her own. The fight scene between clandestine and everybody is pretty cool, and I say and everybody, but it's really just Kamala with Bruno trying to distract them, but he ends up hurting his arm. He's kind of useless in these fights. He's just a person. Kamran is a much better fighter while Kamala gets Bruno out. Kamran seems to get killed in a fall, however, that's quickly proven not to be a thing. But Najma doesn't seem to care. Now, one thing to note is that Najma and the other members of Clandestine are very, very old, or over 100 years old. However, uh, Kamran, her son, is only 17. He is actually just a 17-year-old. He did not come from another dimension. He was born on Earth 17 years ago. Um, so that could explain a little bit why possibly Najma does not have very much concern for his safety. He's just a pet, basically. <laughs> so she ends up grabbing the gauntlet, um, uh, the, the, the bracelet on the bangle on Kamala's hand as it's still on her. And together they see a train coming through a village. Oh, sorry, through a vision. <laughs> I can't read. Um, and then, of course, the DODC show up. They arrest all of clandestine while Kamala and Bruno get away. And that's when we see Cameron is actually not dead. Okay, good. And unfortunately, when Bruno and Kamala leave the venue, Nakia is there at the back door. She was coming to see what was going on with her friend. And now she sees Kamala's construct and realizing that she is the hero in question, 
she is in shock and Kamala ends up having to leave her to help Bruno, um, leaving Nakia to help Bruno while Kamala goes home to her family. Later that night, her nanny Sana calls her grandmother saying that she saw the train too. And now Kamala has to come to Pakistan to visit her. She has to come to Karachi. And so I guess we're going to see that in this episode this week. And I'm really excited for it. And I can't wait to find out more about the Bengals and the family history and the Cree and how they're all connected and why the Ten Ring stuff was down there. What the heck is going on? I don't know, but I love it. Super excited. Mega bands, Cree, Jin clandestine i don't know i just i really like how this show is going i think that it's much more engaging than moon knight was um and i have not come across any religions that have been completely brutalized the way that moon knight did either so win-win here <laughs> now we're gonna talk star trek strange new worlds which is the catch-up of episodes six seven and eight titled episode six Lift Us Where the Suffering Cannot Reach, Episode 7, The Serene Squall, and Episode 8, The Elysian Kingdom. Um, I didn't really have to go over these, but after kind of reviewing their content the other day, I decided to go ahead and talk about them because they all, all three of them, have really fantastic, classic Roddenberry Trek factors to them um, that just hits perfectly um, in the classic Star Trek vibes and what Star Trek is and why it is so cool to me. So it, it's worth discussing for me. Uh, episode six, Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach, finds us on an idyllic planet where Spock's, I'm sorry, I, it's not Spock, where Pike's kind of love of his life um, basically lives and they are under threat and they need help to get past it. Um, but basically what it comes down to is the Enterprise and its crew learned that the threat, uh, was trying to, the, 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 the threatening faction, I should say, was just trying to stop a young boy from being ultimately sacrificed to a machine that keeps their planet spinning. In short, um, the bulk of the episode is Pike and his gang fighting for the boy to take charge as savior of the people, but they don't have all of the information. For whatever reason, the planet keeps going when attached only to a human consciousness, and for unknown to anyone reasons, at least anymore, it's been a very long time and history has been forgotten on this planet, it must be a child. The machine basically spends years literally sucking the life out of the child until they are a wither withered corpse and die. Then they are replaced immediately. So this little boy, he shows no fear until he's inside the chamber and sees the body of his predecessor, and that's when Pike starts to figure out what is actually going on here. This is a classic moral dilemma situation of Star Trek. The survival slash happiness of one versus the survival slash happiness of the entire species. Obviously, they don't want this, but Pike is kept at bay and the machine does get its child sacrifice. Later, Pike and his lover confirm that the boy is most likely in incredible pain, but there is no way around it for the survival of their planet. With this information, Pike leaves her, saying that he will never return. It is quite sad, but it does revolve around a classic moral dilemma that Roddenberry loved to use alien species in societies to explore. It is a huge part of why Star Trek is so cool to me. 
which brings us to episode seven, The Serene Squall. In this episode, the Enterprise picks up what might be the most alternative design character in all of Trek history, who apparently works to help uh, non-Federation included refugees get to their destination safely. Uh, they are, I will probably muck it up at some point, but they are apparently meant to be non-binary, as everyone does refer to them in this they-them pronouns. So their name is, that we're going to call them here, uh, that they go by for the bulk of the episode, is Angel. They tell the Enterprise that a large group of people were taken by space pirates, ultimately, and they need the Enterprise's help in saving them. One, um, as soon as we learned what this person's job was meant to be, I could tell something was up. There's no way someone who does that sort of stuff for a living looks like a freaking space scene-ster and has the personality that she w that this person was showing, flirting with Spock, trying to get him to listen to his human side. It just all felt very off. And I was right to feel that way because before too long, we discover that Angel is actually the leader of the space pirates and their story of kidnapping a bunch of refugees or having a bunch of refugees kidnapped was entirely made up. They just wanted to take over the Enterprise, basically. Um, and now she they want Spock because Spock's fiance, Tapring, is the jailer, we'll just say jailer because it makes it way easier than explaining what her job actually is, um, of Angel's lover, who is Spock's terrorist brother. The plot thickens. So Angel rings up Tapring, Spock's fiance, and says that they're going to kill Spock if Tapring doesn't release uh, his brother, which is, of course, Angel's lover. T'Pring cannot do so, but she is bound to Spock in duty through their engagement, so she feels she must. So, to keep her from releasing the prisoner, Spock makes up a story that he and Nurse Chapel are in love and having an affair, leading T'Pring to call off their engagement. In that way, she has no duty to protect Spock and must not, once again, release the prisoner. And everything is pretty much good, except for, you know, Spock's life. Meanwhile, um, the other br the, the the bridge crew that would be on the Enterprise, they have all gone to this space pirate ship, which ended up being a trap. Um, so they end up resorting to starting a mutiny among that ship's people in order to take control of it. Again, classic Star Trek, super fun to watch. The fact that Pike made the whole pirate crew dinner to get on their good side was absolutely hilarious. And as several articles I read had noted, 100% not the way Captain Kirk would have done things in his time. In the end, they do get to go back to the Enterprise and Angel does not get anything that they wanted, but they do escape. There's also a really cool scene of the Enterprise getting trapped in a space pirate web thing and maneuvering its way out, so CGI is still top-notch here. Finally, Episode 8, The Elysian Kingdom. This is once again classic Star Trek. The crew is trapped under the influence of an alien consciousness that makes them all think they're medieval courtesans, basically. All except for Dr. Mbenga, who was in the transporter at the time, so he is aware of what's going on. Basically, it turns out that the alien consciousness in the cloud met his dying daughter in the um, in the transporter and became attached to her and decided to show her her dreams come true. It is the book that her dad always reads to her at night, but with the ending she always wanted. So the crew, the crew of the Enterprise are all playing characters in the book. 
In the end, he finds his daughter, Mbenga finds his daughter on the ship and speaks to her about what's going on and that it can't continue. She talks to the entity in return, saying that, saying that it heard her, it healed her of her deadly and incurable disease. But if she leaves this place, she will get sick again. She wants to stay with the entity, so it kind of ends up absorbing her and they go off in space together with her father's, you know, well wishes. But only moments later, she returns, but this time as an adult. Time is different where she was, but she wanted to stop and tell her father that he made the right decision in sending her away with the entity. She named it after her late mother and has never been happier. She gets to live out her dreams every day and they will meet again. That wraps up this week's episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, follow, do the thing that you can do, rate, if that's a thing that's on the, the whatever you're listening to this on. Um, and we will be back for another episode. We have the June Yancey Street special. By the end of this week, I will have that out. It is covering Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat. She is one of Marvel's oldest characters, and she has a fantastic history that is a lot deeper and more thorough than a lot of people give her credit for. So I really want to cover that. And the reason that we are covering that is because once again, tomorrow on Wednesday, we have the Iron Man Hellcat annual special number one that's coming out. There probably isn't going to ever be another special like this. So I'm very excited and I'm very much hoping that it is going to lead us into a new era of Patsy Walker comics. Um, however unlikely that might be, uh, this is what I am hoping. So you can keep an eye out or an ear out for that Patsy Walker June Yancey Street special sometime this week. Otherwise, the next regular episode is going to be episode 70, and that was going to cover episode four of Ms. Marvel it is going to cover whatever news and information and updates we have. It will cover comic book picks with any luck. I will be catching up on things this week. And it will be covering comic book polls of next week. Obviously, we have uh, Ms. Marvel Kenobi is over, but we also have Strange New Worlds that we can discuss as well. I also have a, a side podcast episode put put to the... Um, put to the side, um, that I'm ready to record involving September's comic book solicitations. I could have put it at the end of this one, but I really didn't feel like making it an extra length podcast more than it already is. So we're just going to have it be its own episode, its own unnumbered episode for the September Marvel and DC comic book solicitations. Thank you for listening for whatever portion of the podcast you were able to. Um, again, if you enjoy the podcast, please share and we can grow the community. Um, you can find all kinds of links of things in the description below. Um, if you want to find me again, Anna with the comics on Instagram is the easiest place to do so. And it is full-fledged summer now. It has been a couple of days of over 100 degrees here where I am, so please keep yourselves hydrated. Hydrate hippies, and uh, if you are getting physically sweaty, um, make sure you are replenishing your water intake. Otherwise, have a great week, stay cool, don't get dehydrated, and don't, you know, die in the sun. And we'll see you next time. Peace.